The Good Earth by Pearl Buck is set in early 20th century China. It starts out that things are good, that the rains are falling, but then they stop. And after months, the farmer Wang Lung, his family, and all who live around him are starving. Life gets more and more desperate, and they eat their farm animals. And they scour the hillsides for grass and the trees for their bark until there's nothing left to eat. Word goes around the village that Wang Lung's manipulative and selfish uncle, though, still has some flesh on his bones. Word also goes around that the uncle's family of nine is now a family of six. And for the reader, there is the shocking and painful recognition that this couple has killed and eaten three of their own children to keep from starving to death. I have to admit a similar feeling of disgust when I hear Jesus talking about his followers eating his flesh and drinking his blood. Early Christians were accused of cannibalism for language like this. And yet... This is John. And when I read John and when I think John, the Gospel of John, I have to think metaphor. We have to think symbol, symbolism. John is the Gospel where Jesus is bread. Jesus is living water. Jesus is a gate. When we read John, we read poetically and symbolically. And that takes the edge off Jesus' statement in verse 56, those who eat my flesh and drink my blood abide in me and I in them. Now, eating is one of my favorite activities. I still have my children, though, thank goodness. But I I eat, perhaps like you, every day, several times. And the older I get, the more concerned I am about what I ingest. When I was a kid, on the other hand, and got my allowance, there was a time when I got my dollar's worth of allowance in dimes. And so one dime went into the offering plate at church. One or two, I don't I have to check with the peas here, but went into um, my savings. And then the rest was mine to do with as I wanted. And so with that other 70 cents, well, there was Shannon, my neighbor. And so I would walk through our yard to and other yards over to Shannon's house, collect her. We would cross Forest Hill Avenue and go through the woods and then through her church's parking lot, and then we crossed this other busy road, and then a big parking lot to get to Cardinal Drugstore. And in Cardinal Drugstore, we were faced with the glory of the tantalizing candy along the front counter. And every single package was calling, pick me, pick me, sprees, sicklets, 
M&Ms, these were among my favorites, but it changed. But I had no qualms at all, no concern about how much sugar was coursing through my veins as I popped the candy in my mouth on the way home. We are a culture of consumers. The consumer price index will never go away because we consume until we die. Most of what we consume, though, is like the manna in the wilderness for the Israelites that God provided. It's like the candy that I bought at Cardinal Drugstore. We eat it, and it's gone. We have nothing to show for that candy as we get older except an expanding waistline. It's temporal. What Jesus offers us is eternal. And so perhaps he uses these disturbing words to make us wake up and take notice as he points to the most important part of the sentence, which is abiding in him. In Carol's translation, it was remaining in him. And really, that's what offensive words are supposed to do, right? They point to the important things in a sentence, People use colorful language to emphasize a word or point. I'm restricted, of course, in how many of those I can use from this pulpit. But you watch TV and you watch movies and, 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 well, you know how it is. If you've lived long enough, you know that cuss words on television used to stick out more because there were fewer of them. And then the FCC softened their regulations, and then cable TV came along, possibly about the same time, I didn't check. But as we hear offensive words more, we get used to them, and they lose their ability to magnify the words that they're modifying. And so I think it is with Jesus' words sometimes. We've heard them so much that they've lost their power, do you think? Love your enemies and pray for those who hurt you? Yeah, right. Do not judge others? (laughs) As if. Do not be anxious? A report comes out and an expert says he's never seen families so stressed. Do not be anxious. Sure, Jesus. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood abide in me and I in them. Whatever. We've heard it so much, perhaps, that it has lost its meaning. If we take time to think about it, though, which... Bible studies give us and sermons give us, we recognize ourselves in the earliest disciples. Most of us have been in a situation where we have searched for a new home. Maybe the teenagers, not so much, but everyone else has. When we search for a home or when we build a home, we're preparing a place To abide. That's the word that the NRSV offers us. Abiding, to me, is enjoying the feeling of being at home. Do you remember the song? Little cabin in the woods. 
What is the next one? Little man by the window stood, saw a rabbit hopping by, knocking at his door. Help me, help me, help me, he said, or the hunter will shoot me dead. Little rabbit, come inside, safely to abide. You have to see the safely to abide. Because that picture, I mean, can't you just, can you feel what the bunny is feeling? Then, you know, being chased by someone who wants to kill the bunny, and then it comes inside, and it's cradled in the arms of someone who cares for it and pets it. That's abiding. And that's what God, Jesus, calls us to do in him. Finding a home in Jesus sounds good. But does it really mean consuming Jesus? Like the earliest disciples, we say, this teaching is difficult. Who can accept it? And that's when Jesus responds with a question to which he knows the response. Does this offend you? Does this offend you? Since he knows our hearts and would know if we lied, we are honest in our response. Yes, Jesus, it offends us. It is disturbing. It is disgusting. Can't you make it easier to be your disciple? Can't you at least soften the language a bit so it's easier to swallow? There's a story that when Harry Truman was speaking at a Grange convention in Kansas City, Mrs. Truman and a friend were in the audience. And in his speech to farmers, Truman said, I grew up on a farm, and one thing I know, farming means manure, 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 and more manure. And at this, Mrs. Truman's friend whispered to her, Bess, why on earth don't you get Harry to say fertilizer? And she replied, good Lord, Helen, you have no, no idea how many years it has got, taken me to get him to say manure. <laughs> because of Jesus' offensive words, many of his disciples turned back and no longer went about with him. Many couldn't get past the metaphor or the difficulty which the metaphor represented. They couldn't get beyond what they had already experienced during their lives. They couldn't accept his new and challenging teachings. Though we in the church claim and attempt to follow Jesus, his words are still difficult. We like the grace, and we like the forgiveness image, and we like the be kind to children image, and that image of the the man in the cabin in the woods, you know, embracing us, having compassion on us. But sometimes I fear we overlook, maybe I should speak from my perspective, I overlook the hard sayings. It's like when a preacher visited an elderly woman from his congregation. As he sat on the couch, he noticed a large bowl of peanuts on the coffee table. He asked if She minded if he had a few, so she said, not at all, of course not. So they chatted for a while, and as the preacher sat there, he just, you know, was continuing to eat those peanuts. 
when he stood up to leave, he realized he had almost emptied the bowl and he apologized. He said, I'm sorry for eating all of your peanuts. I really just meant to eat a few. Oh, that's all right, said the woman. Ever since I lost my teeth, all I can do is suck the chocolate off of them. So think about this, and think about this as the church. Do we do that with Jesus? Do we enjoy... Stop. (laughs) Do we enjoy the sweet part of who he is, and then leave the hard part for someone else? We like the fellowship with others and the mercy and the grace, but Jesus asks that we deal with the hard stuff too. Deal with our budgets and make sure we're sharing enough. Deal with our time and seeing, seeing if we're looking at it, see if we're looking at it and directing it in positive ways. Deal with our enemies and forgive them as he forgives us. Jesus asks us, as he asked his earlier disciples, do you also wish to go away? When I went to college orientation, I had no idea which major to declare, but we had to write down something at the first meeting, and that then determined where we would go for, our, for the continuation of the orientation. It was divided by schools. So I wrote down communication arts at the suggestion of my father. And so I signed up for those classes first semester, second semester, and then as I was halfway through second semester and looking then to the fall, we would get out, get this newspaper that had all the classes. Remember John, Tim, others? Um, we, it, had, it was a newspaper and it listed all the classes and it listed them by school. And so I would look at that and I think, What else could I do? I really don't think I like this. And so I did that this spring semester of my freshman year, and I did it again the spring semester of my junior year, or my my sophomore year. I wondered whether this was the right place for me, but I didn't find anything else that really appealed And it strikes me then that we do the same thing in the life of faith. We take first the route that our parents suggest. We go to church with them or not. We go to that denomination or that that religion or no religion. And then at some point we question. We question to see whether that is the route we want to take too. It's a stage of maturation when we begin to question those things. And Jesus asks us at that point, as he asks his early disciples, do you also wish to go away? Last weekend we had a wedding here. Right here, the altar, the bride and groom vowed to accept, love, honor, and cherish each other as long as they both shall live. Now, having been married for a while now, I know how clueless I was when I stood right there. (laughs) 
And years from now, too, perhaps this couple will remember those vows they made in front of God and everybody and realize how hard it is to live with the same person as you grow and change. Do you also wish to go away? We ask ourselves, do I also wish to go away? But you go back to that commitment that you made and you stick with it. In the life of faith, we made a commitment at our baptism or our confirmation. We committed to following Jesus wherever he would lead us. Well, how about now? How many years has it been since you committed your life to Jesus? Do you also wish to go away? Peter, probably in that same process of maturation that we go through, he had probably looked around. He had looked at the synagogue and he had looked at maybe Roman gods, who knows. But he came to the conclusion and he responds to Jesus' question like this, Lord, to whom can we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe our hearts and to know our minds that you are the Holy One of God. We can go a lot of different directions. We can consume a lot of stuff. We can follow a lot of wise people. But the words of Jesus, the words of eternal life and love, are the only ones that fill us so powerfully and so completely. Do you also wish to go away? Let's pray. Lord our God, you have the words of eternal life. We have come to know and believe that you are the Holy One of God. Help us to follow you this day and every day. Amen.